Tonight, the title of my message is A Greater Miracle Than the One on 34th Street. A Greater Miracle Than the One on 34th Street. How many of you have seen the movie A Miracle on 34th Street? Originally, or the old version, the original version, 1947, I believe, was actually it. But uh, yeah, you're not raising your hands because y'all saw it in 1947. You're raising your hand because you saw the original, I know. Uh, we'll, we are going to, uh, tonight, use that as a springboard for our lesson tonight. So because it may have been blurred by years since you have seen it, let me just give you a brief reminder about what the movie's all about. The movie centers on a girl who discovers, who, who believes in Christmas and who meets a man named Kris Kringle who is hired as the Santa to play the role of Santa in uh, Macy's department store in New York City on 34th Street, no less. And so there begins to be a big discussion about whether or not there is truly a Santa Claus. The whole story is built around Kris Kringle being placed on trial for whether or not he is truly either insane or is actually Kris Kringle Santa Claus. That's what the story's all about. I'm just a moment, I'm going to show you a brief clip, but I need to give a disclaimer because it is not too typical for me to talk about Santa Claus at church. All right? We do not worship Santa Claus. And whether or not you and your family choose to make Santa Claus even an issue of discussion is up to you, and I'll not intervene in that. But I do thought, I thought it might be helpful to mention this. Someone once said that there are four stages in the life of every man. Here they are. Number one, you believe in Santa Claus. Second stage, you don't believe in Santa Claus. Third stage, you are Santa Claus. And fourth stage, you start looking like Santa Claus. So, all right. Now, what I want to do tonight is talk to you about the fact that we have greater miracles than ever could be imagined, even on the miracle of uh, 34th Street. And I'm going to suggest to you tonight uh, several miracles, and I think I've actually added another one. I started with three, but I, I received inspiration to add a fourth. So we now have four miracles that I want to talk about. And these basically encapsulate the whole Christmas story. So let's look at them together tonight. The miracles of Christmas. Number one is the miracle of fulfillment. The miracle of fulfillment. You may have never paused long to think about the miracle of fulfillment. Let's begin with the scripture from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. He paid for you with the precious lifeblood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him for this purpose long before the world began, but now in these final days he was sent to the earth for all to see. And this he did for you. There was a famous scientist, maybe you've heard of him before, Blaise Pascal. This French scientist was known for being an atheist, being completely controlled and dominated by only what made 
rational sense to his mind. But over time, and through great philosophical reasoning even, he came to terms with reading the scripture and drew a conclusion that Jesus was indeed who he said he was. And he was converted and put faith in Christ and became a well-known proponent and advocate of Christianity. During Blaise Pascal's life, he made this interesting statement. He said, the greatest of the proofs, underline the word proofs, the greatest of the proofs of Jesus being the Christ, the Messiah, are the multitude of fulfilled prophecies. What's he talking about? Fulfilled prophecies. You see, down through history, God has provided us a road map. In the Bibles that you hold in your hand, there is a road map to see Jesus as the Christ. God foretold, predicted various things, signs, conditions that would occur through the prophets of the Old Testament. And there were many. We have major, we have minor prophets, we have all of these prophets over the course of a thousand or so years that spoke and prophesied of a Messiah who was to come. Generally, we divide these up into prophecies about the two comings of Christ, the first coming and the second coming. The problem with the early, the Jews of the, the days of Jesus were that they confused the two. And instead of seeing what we call the two mountains of prophecy, they confused them by thinking it was just one. Because when they viewed it from their perspective, all they could see was one mountain. But only after Jesus came and lived his life and those who began to separate the two into those that referred to the first coming and the second coming could people realize there were actually two mountains of prophecy. The first mountain of prophecy including 332 prophecies. 332 prophecies that we refer to as messianic prophecies speaking about the first coming of Christ. That leaves, by the way, more than a thousand more that refer to, guess what? The second coming of Christ. Isn't it interesting that there's the preponderance of prophecies about the Messiah referred to the return of Christ, the second coming, more than the first? Very interesting, isn't it? 332 prophecies given to us in the Old Testament hundreds and hundreds, as much as 800 years before the coming of Christ. And depending on those that you want to relate to the first coming, you can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 that speaks of the seed of the woman who is coming to crush the head of the serpent. You see, God was trying to give us a road map even through the Old Testament, even with the scriptures that are held by some who there are those that attempt to worship God but yet deny that Jesus was Messiah, that believe that the Old Testament is real and yet don't see the road map. 450 years before Christ, the Old Testament 
writings had been made complete. So here we find predictions about the first coming of Jesus that predicted his birth, his, his uh, pre-existence, his birth, his life, his sufferings, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his exaltation. All of those refer to the first advent of Jesus Christ. 332. That's pretty profound, isn't it? The amazing thing is the precision. The technical precision by which these prophecies predict and foretell things about what was going to happen. And tonight we don't have the time to give you all of those that relate to the first coming of Christ, but I've simply squeezed in a few that relate to the birth of Christ. All right? But uh, I would admonish you, maybe sometime study through all of the prophecies that have to do with the coming of Christ. You'll learn so much. I thought it might be interesting because I think this adds great credibility to Scripture. Look at the mathematical probabilities. What is the probability as it was asked to some, some very astute mathematicians and researchers to estimate what was the probability of someone fulfilling a certain number of prophecies? Now, I have to admit to you, I don't know what that first number is, all right? But I, I know it is well over a trillion, it's way over a, a trillion. Uh, so I, 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 you know, I kind of get lost when I get over a trillion. You know, but anyway, for one person, think about this, for one person to fulfill just eight of those prophecies, it's only one chance in that many. What is it? A quadrillion? I trust you, whatever you say. I believe you. I knew someone would speak up authoritatively and give us the correct. All right. It's a lot. Wouldn't you agree? One, per, one person fulfilling 48. Let's just say 48 prophecies. The chance is what? One chance in 10 to the, forget the number, to the 157th power. That is huge, isn't it? It's astronomical. So, for one person to fulfill 300 plus prophecies with specificity, it can only be done by one person, Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but maybe as much as anything else, you have to realize that faith, as C.S. Lewis said, is not just a leap out into darkness, but there's great cause, facts, and evidence even for our faith. Josh McDowell, who used to be with Campus Crusade for Christ, wrote a book way back in, uh, I think it was originally written in the early to mid-1980s, entitled Evidence That Demands a Verdict. The whole book was filled with evidentiary statistics and statements showing the evidence of what happened in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, leading us to have to make a verdict. Everyone has to make a verdict 
has to make the verdict about Jesus Christ. And I don't know, I just found that thinking about the miracle of his fulfillment has to be encouraging for all of us. I just, as I said, I've just compressed and provided a few of these magnificent, detailed, messianic prophecies that are helped to mark the Bible as the inspired word of God. Only God could foreknow the details. Only he could accomplish and arrange things to where each and every one of these were fulfilled. God is sovereign, amen? He is all-powerful. The historical accuracy and reliability of not only the prophecies, but the fulfillment of those prophecies in great detail through the life of Jesus Christ is simply amazing. And it sets the Bible apart from any other book or record. There are prophecies about his first coming. We find a prophecy about the fact that he was going to be preceded by a messenger. And we're not going to stop and read all these. I'm just pointing out, you can look at them on your own. In Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1 says that there is one coming that will prepare the way for him. And what was his name? John the Baptist, right? You can read in Matthew chapter 1 about that fulfillment. Uh, uh, we, we, I'm sorry, Malachi, I gave you the wrong scripture. In Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, it's fulfilled in Luke chapter 7 and verse 27, as well as other passages. We also find that he was born to human lineage. Yeah. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1 speak of the fact that out of the stump of Jesse, he compares Jesus and his lineage to a tree with root system and then a trunk, a stump of a tree and an olive shoot that was shooting up out of the stump. The stump was referred to as Jesse. And who was Jesse? David's father. Read the first chapter of Matthew. Some would say the most boring chapter of all of the New Testament. Because it's a genealogy of Jesus. But there's great revelation listed in the begats. Because we learn that Jesus goes back to the lineage of David and it was that that was prophesied. And it said that David, out of the stump of Jesse, out of that lineage would come this olive shoot, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Fulfilled Luke chapter 1 and in Matthew chapter 1. And then we also find that he was going to be born to a virgin, very specifically mentioned in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that the Messiah would be born to a virgin. And yes, he was. And we also see that it's predicted, even with great specificity and precision, the town he was going to be born in. Now, if someone were simply trying to Hit a, hit a dart board with a dart, they would have likely chosen a large city. Wouldn't that have had a greater chance of being fulfilled? But no, 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 not a big city, but an obscure village, Bethlehem. The city of David. How in the world would that 
ever be the case. Micah 5 and verse 2 predicts it. And yes, Matthew's gospel tells us exactly how it came about. And I'll read a little bit in just a moment. We know that God arranged because of Caesar's decree that everyone had to go back to the birth, their birthplace, to pay taxes. Who would have ever guessed that 450 years before, 450 years before Jesus was born, a prophet under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Not only that, but even his name. His name would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that was also fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1. And we also know that it even predicts in Psalm 72 and verse 10 that he would be presented at his birth with gifts. You might say, well, a lot of babies get gifts. But look at the... Look at the accuracy and the specificity. It is quite amazing. Wouldn't you agree that the miracle of fulfillment is a miracle greater than the one on 34th Street? Let's look at the second miracle. The miracle of the virgin birth. An incredible miracle that sometimes we who have been churched and those of us who have been taught good basic evangelical doctrines, orthodoxy, teaches us about the virgin birth. People who grew up having memorized the Apostles' Creed or other creeds and state those creeds even regularly, speak of Jesus born a virgin Mary, and they say it and they say it and they say it, but never understand it. It is a miracle that we must understand and value and never ever forget the miracle of the virgin birth the son of god jesus christ was born of mary we know let me read to you from a moment from matthew chapter 1 verse 18 and following this is how the birth of jesus the messiah came about matthew said his mother mary was pledged to be married to joseph but before they came together she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 1 confirms for us her virginity. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, the town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, emphasizing again his descendancy, see? The virgin's name was what? Mary. And the angel said to her what? Greetings, Mary, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. 
Mary was troubled by these words, and she wondered what kind of greeting this had to be. But the angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Listen, verse 31. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called, he will be called the Son of the Most High God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, etc., etc. And Mary asked the question in verse 34. Same question you would ask. How? How will this be? I'm a virgin. The angel answered. Listen to the answer. The Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And he goes on to talk about the birth. So the point is what? God chose an ordinary peasant girl named Mary. You ever ask yourself, why Mary? Hmm? Why Mary? I think part of the reason God picked Mary is because she was so ordinary. I don't think it would have had the impact if he would have chosen someone of royalty. I don't think it would have made the impact if he would have chosen someone elite or socially aloof or even wealthy, but instead a devout, righteous woman of God who was a virgin named Mary. Wow. The fact of the virgin birth of Mary remains as one of the greatest miracles of Christmas. And we need to honor, appreciate, and value it. Yes, the miracle of the virgin birth. Then there have the third miracle, which is the miracle of the incarnation. Similar, but a little distinct, and I separated it on purpose. The miracle of the incarnation. What does incarnate just the word incarnate mean. Someone know? In flesh. The word carne. Even in Spanish, we have the word carne uh, suggesting for meat. It's the idea of flesh. In flesh. It's the picture. Incarnation is the taking on of flesh by Jesus Christ, by God himself, becoming man. So let's just review. I know you understand what incarnation means, but it's helpful to value the miracle of the incarnation. This is the miracle of God, the creator, the sustainer of the universe, the one that spoke the stars into existence, the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. This is that God, all-powerful, deciding to take on the flesh of humanity and all those limitations that went with it. Philippians chapter 2 tells us God thought it not robbery to be equal, to leave his place in heaven and take on flesh. He became a servant. He took on flesh incarnate, God becoming man. It is so important that you get this straight. 
Jesus was 100% man, but 100% God. You say, I can't understand that. It's fact. Accept it by faith. It is true. That is who Christ was. How do we know he was a son of man? Because we read in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. That's the reason for the genealogies, quite frankly, there in Matthew, chapter 1, is to demonstrate to us that, yes, he was the son of man. In other words, he was human. He was human because he had a human father. Yes, I'm sorry, he had a human mother. He was divine because he had a divine father. He's son of man, but he is also the son of God, right? And we see the conception in the scriptures. So important that we remember the miracle of the incarnation. Maybe the most powerful scripture that helps us to grasp this Beautiful, theological, doctrinally accurate, valid, truth, miracle of Christmas is John chapter 1, verse 14. Listen to it carefully. The Word. John begins his chapter by saying what? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. The Word was God. And then fast forward to verse 14 and it says what? The Word became flesh. incarnation and made his dwelling among us live just like you and me we have seen his glory the glory of the one and his only son who came from the father full of grace and truth every time every year at this time we celebrate the birth of jesus the baby to the virgin mary I don't suppose it occurs to too many people who celebrate Christmas what they're really celebrating. But the whole idea of Christmas is the incarnation. All the other miracles are really subjected to that central miracle that God became man. And in becoming man, through spiritual conception, miraculous conception, the man, Jesus of Nazareth, the word of God did not cease to be God. Baby Jesus, from the moment of conception to the straw habitation of the manger, was fully God and fully man. That, Christians, that is what Christmas is all about. Charlie Brown, that's what Christmas is all about. John Piper says, when we put our minds long to the idea of Jesus being 100% God and simultaneously 100% man, they feel naturally overwhelmed. The orthodox doctrine of the incarnation is compelling, beautiful, biblically sensible, and salvifically necessary. But it is nevertheless utterly inscrutable. And that's okay. In the end, the incarnation is not for our analysis but for our worship. I love that last statement. It is not for our analysis, but it is for our worship. Hallelujah. Thank you, John Piper, for giving us that. If we deny the virgin birth, and there are those that do, we deny the incarnation of God. 
If we deny the incarnation of God, we're denying the inspiration of Scripture. And if we do that, we deny it all. But yet in the midst of those denials that many people make, Jesus Christ is still there. He's still right there before us. Towering above all humankind. Unique and separate and apart. How do you account for him? Hmm? How do you account for this miracle? It's easy to account for Julius Caesar. It's easy to account for Alexander the Great. It's easy to account for John F. Kennedy. Shakespeare, Napoleon Bonaparte, or even Homer. It's easy to account for any other person who's ever lived in the human race. But how do you account for Jesus? Where did he come from? And what is he? That is a decision that each of us have to make about Christ. The miracle of the incarnation the fourth miracle is the miracle of faith this will be my last the miracle of faith in some ways this is what the whole uh, classic movie of the miracle on 34th street was all about whether or not someone could actually exert belief in something there were many there are many and there were many who found faith during that first Christmas. Can we be reminded? The shepherds, they went to Bethlehem to see if what they heard was true. They said, I don't know that they had faith then, but they want to check it out. How many of you know that we still have seekers today? Yeah, we need to pray for more seekers. That's a good state to be in, to be seeking to know the truth. The shepherds went to Bethlehem to see if what they had heard was true. But after they saw him, they believed. And they told everyone what they saw and heard. And Luke chapter 2, verse 15 through 20 confirms it. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off. They found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said. Praise God. They not only believed, but they shared it. That's a good example for us, isn't it? Not only should we believe, we should also tell others what we have seen and what we believe, just like those shepherds. And even Joseph believed, took a little nudging from the angel, but even he believed. We know that Mary believed after she had been told. Her words were what? Lord, I don't know how to handle this. I, I, can't, quite, uh, I can't quite conceive uh, of the idea that I can actually have a baby and not go through the normal relationship that a man and a woman would have to have a child. She said, but all things are possible. Nothing, she said, is impossible with God. Mary believed. And you and I can believe today. 
And we can have the same faith today. We've heard the same good news that was proclaimed to the shepherds. We have the benefit of a complete Bible and the New Testament and the written Gospels for our sake. How shall we not believe? We don't have to visit the stable. You don't have to go to the stable or to the manger to believe. And we know that John chapter 1, verse 10 through 13 says, He was in the world and through the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. Listen to this. Yet to all who did receive him. How many of you here have received him? To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Hallelujah. The miracle of faith that took place not only in the days of the birth of Jesus, but it's also a miracle when you and I put faith in him. The attorney representing Chris Kringle was named Fred. That's right, Fred. Listen, I'll close with the words of Fred as he spoke to an unbelieving friend. Someday you're going to find out that your way of facing this realistic world just doesn't work. And when you do, don't overlook these lovely intangibles. You'll discover that what you can't see are the only things that are worthwhile. That's what faith is all about. I want you to stand to your feet. And since we've talked about miracles tonight, the miracles of Christmas, I think it's appropriate that we pray for miracles tonight. Amen? I want to ask you a question. How many of you tonight have a need for a miracle in your life? Maybe it's a miracle of finances. Maybe it's a miracle. I have needs for miracle in my life. Family miracles, personal miracles. I need, I mean, some stuff that I can't maneuver my way around. I can't just flip a switch and make it happen. I can't stroke a check and make it a reality. I need some miracles in my life. What about you? Are there miracles that you need? You say, without God, it's not going to happen. The answer is, but God. That's what we all need. We need a but God miracle. Amen? To do whatever it may be. Maybe it's to deliver you out of a crisis. Maybe it's to provide you with a husband or a wife. Maybe it's to save your children. Maybe it's to give you a new job or to heal you from an incurable disease. But whatever it is, if the miracle of incarnation is true, how much more do you think God can and will work in your life tonight? If you have a need for a miracle, would you just... Lock in on it right now. I don't want you just to say, oh yeah, I've got plenty of things. No, no, I, I want you to lock in on something before we pray. 
What miracle do you tonight want to ask the incarnate one to do in your life? Would you specify it? And on that note, I want you just, if you have something in your mind that you want to pray for that miracle, I'm going to ask that you would just raise one hand towards heaven as a step of faith. And I'm going to pray. Lord, tonight you see these hands that are lifted because we need a miracle. We need many miracles. Lord, you know the miracle need before we ever speak it, before we ever request it. You see it. You know it. Because you know every hair on our head. You know everything about our past, our present, and you even know the end of our days. And so tonight, great almighty God, in whom there is no lack, your arm is not too short. You are not only able, but you are interested and willing to intervene if we simply have faith and believe. Tonight, Lord, we put our faith out there, asking for miracles, heal sick bodies, save those that are lost, deliver those that are oppressed and bound with chains of habits and sin. Lord, we pray for marriages that need to be restored and reconciled. Father, we pray for blessings upon businesses. We ask that doors of opportunity would swing wide open. Lord, that you would bless our finances and multiply back, Lord, as we have sown in faith. Lord, we pray for business promotion, job promotions. We pray, Father, that you would cause each of us to receive to receive these miracles. Lord, right now, some of us are struggling to even believe. So, Lord, even as your disciples said, we said, Lord, please help our faith. Help our faith. Increase our small faith. Help us, Lord, to grow in our capacity to receive the unseen into this visible, natural world. So, Lord, tonight, we want to say thank you that we can worship the miracle worker. The source of all miracles is our God. And we worship and we honor you tonight in the precious and mighty name of Jesus. Amen.